0: I was reading last week an interview with Michael Holt on The Metro Online. The Metro is a free newspaper. They have a website as well. And uh, Michael Holt is very honest and pretty brutal when it comes to his own career and uh, was talking about his sense of disappointment at what he's achieved. He feels he hasn't done as well as he could have done, as he should have done. It got me thinking about the whole nature, really, of success, not just in sport, but in life as well. But we start by just looking at what Michael actually said, and I'll just read you some of the quotes talking about his career which uh, as a professional has been going since 1996 he said in my honest opinion I can f- I've completely flopped it I don't think I could have done any worse I spent so many years struggling because I don't feel I've reached anywhere near the potential I could have I can't moan it's just how I feel I think I've stayed around for as long as I have because I'm really good at it but I've never felt comfortable yet he says uh, as far as I'm concerned I've never felt comfortable enough to play at the level I need to consistently enough and that's where i I've been where I am in the game. It's frustrating because I've lacked confidence down the years, but I've got ultimate belief in how good I am. I think I can be a top player. I believe it. I genuinely do. I can play all the shots. I've never played a player in my life and thought, I can't do that. And there's several more quotes as well. You can look at the the interview yourself on, on the Metro website. It was very interesting. I think it was an interesting, quite illuminating look at how a player feels about their own career. Now, objectively, of course, when he says he couldn't have done any worse, he could have done a lot worse. Because if you go back to when Michael, like a lot of uh, snooker players, started playing, he would have been a boy with a dream. He would have seen snooker on TV and had a dream of becoming a snooker player. And he did. He became a professional snooker player. So that in itself is an achievement. You know, if he'd never made a century then then he, that would have been, I guess, a failure if he'd never turned professional, if he'd never played on television, never beaten anyone on television, never got to the Crucible, never got to a final, never won a tournament. If he'd never done any of those things, you could understand the uh, definition of not having succeeded or, as he said himself, couldn't have done any worse. It's worth saying he has won two tournaments of carried ranking points, albeit at a minor level. He beat John Higgins in the final of a European Players Tour Championship event in 2010 in Prague And then 2011 beat Dominic Dell In a PTC They're not major tournaments But he did win them He was in the final of the Riga Masters 2016 He was in the final of the shootout last year Which although a lot of people don't like it Carries ranking points So it's two ranking finals that he's been in Plus those two minor ranking tournaments that he won He's uh, as high, been as high as 20th in the world rankings In 2016 he beat Ronnie O'Sullivan three times on television in the In the space of that calendar year That was the year that he beat Neil Robertson at the Crucible uh, in the first round of the World Championship. So he's actually achieved quite a lot, a lot that a lot of other players would have liked to have achieved. You go back to when he turned pro in 1996, you look at some of the players he beat. Some of them, frankly, you would never have heard of. Um, Some of them are still going strong, people like Dominic Dell, but there are other players there who chanced their arm and didn't make it. Michael Holt did make it. He's been a professional for 23 years. He's never been relegated from the Tour. So on that objective basis, he hasn't failed. It's just that his own expectations haven't been met. And of course, he's friends with a lot of players who have won tournaments. People like Barry Hawkins and Joe Perry and Anthony Hamilton. They've all won ranking events. And then, sort of the next level up is the you know the legends. People like Mark Williams, who's very friendly with. Obviously, has won three world titles. Mark Selby, who is practiced with, has won three world titles, and so on and so on. But I thought it was interesting what Michael was saying. There are two sort of paradoxical statements he makes, though. On the one hand, he says that uh, he's never felt comfortable, but he's also said that he has total belief in himself. They don't quite seem to marry up. What's missing in the middle, I think, is how you plough through the pressure that you feel in, the, in a big match situation, um, because that's key in snooker. You know, you go to a snooker club, if there's a professional in there and the colours are on their spots, then 99 times out of 100, they'll clear up. There's no reason why they shouldn't. They're very skillful players and there's no pressure. But you go out into a match environment and, of course, all that changes. You know, you go to the Crucible or any arena, there's people watching, there's television cameras, and, of course, there's the reminder of what it means. It could be you need to clear those colours to stay in the match or to win the match or to win the tournament or to get in the top 16. All these sort of factors can cloud your mind. And we've seen lots of players, including great players, their arms tense up and they miss all sorts of balls you wouldn't expect. Because the pressure's on. And you know, you can apply it to anything. I'm sat here in my living room just talking into a phone, but if I was at Wembley Stadium now and there are 80,000 people there and I was having to do this podcast off the top of my head, which is what I'm doing, I would be bang on the pressure to deliver because suddenly there's expectation on it. Suddenly there are stakes that have been raised. But I think it's important to say this, and I will say this because, you know, lots of things have been said about lots of players. Michael Holt is not a bottler, okay? He's won a lot of close matches in his career. As I say, Peter Sullivan three times in a space of a calendar year. It's not bottling it. I think the issue is that he hasn't coped with the pressure as well as some of the other players. And one of the reasons is I think it's about controlling the natural nervous energy that a snooker player feels when they go into an arena. Michael and I've known him a long time and I like him a lot. He's one of my favourite people on the, on the whole snooker circuit. But when he comes into a room, you can you can sort of feel that nervous energy. You know, he's talking, he's sort of fidgeting. That's who he is. That's the person he is. Um, he likes to get involved you know, on Twitter he likes to give his opinions that's the person he is whereas there are certain other players and I'll use the example of of two players I've already mentioned friends of his Mark Williams and Mark Selby are very good at calming that when they get into the arena so they're just focused on the snooker and all that other stuff doesn't get in the way so I think that's been his issue really it's just been playing through the sort of fog the natural nervous energy that you feel and playing his best game he's right what he says he can play every shot and he is a very talented player, and I would say that, that there have been less talented players, frankly, that have won tournaments. But it's about putting it all together. By the way, there's still time. You know, he's 41, that's young these days. Um, so there's still time, but it's just those sort of issues. And, and he's talked about them very honestly himself. It's just those issues of getting to the next level. As he says, to be a regular winner, you've got to be very, very good. And he says the regular winners, it's the mindset. They're not better players technically. It's, the, it's all about the mindset. And he's absolutely right, but it, it, it's a struggle that a lot of players have had to get to that next level. So this sort of—I read this interview, and I was quite interested in it. And but it, it made me sort of think about what we, how we define success. And my conclusion, which I'll jump to and then explain, is that—and it's not just in sport; it's in all walks of life. Notions of success really come from our own expectations, all those expectations that are placed on us. Now, you would think in sport it'd be different. In sport, it's very simple. You're successful if you win. <laughs> and the more you win, the more successful you can call yourself. And, you know, you look at an example, Steve Davis, great player, king of the 80s. He was one of the very first in the television age, one of the very first players who looked professional. You know, he did everything right and he won everything that was worth winning. All of that is true. But what's also true is he's responsible ...for the most famous missed pot in snooker history... ...the black ball that cost him the 1985 World Final against Dennis Taylor. Now that doesn't in any way dilute his success. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't um, impinge on all this, all the tournaments he won. But the fact is, if you were going to tell the Steve Davis story... In, ...in a couple of minutes, that would have to be in there. That was, um, you have to say, a failing on the big stage. Doesn't make him any less of a success... But it slightly muddies the water when we start talking about success. Steve, Stephen Hendry was on this podcast and he spoke about one of the biggest disappointments, probably the biggest disappointment in his career, was losing to Peter Ebden in the 2002 World Final, 18 17. He fully expected to win. Of course, he would have been an eight time World Champion. Now, a lot of people would say to that, well, boo hoo. You know, you won it seven times and you won everything else. He was even more successful, really, than Steve Davis. He took the game to another level, but still in his mind, He thinks back to that match and thinks, I should have won it. And that goes back to what I was saying. It's about expectations. Success is defined by our own expectations. If you turn professional with no expectations and you start winning tournaments, then everything's a bonus. But if you set yourself specific goals and specific targets, it becomes a little bit more difficult. The thing is, though, it's not just our own expectations. It's other people's. And in wider society, you see it all the time. You see it in advertising. You see it in politics they're always trying to tell you that your life can be better. You know, your, your, your car is never good enough, your house is never big enough, your holiday's not luxurious enough, your body's not slim enough. So you've got to change that and then you'll be happier. So, you know, buy a better car, buy a bigger house, have a better holiday, go to the gym more, or vote for me, of course, is the, the thing in politics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This word aspiration that sort of crept into the vernacular is a use, is a word that politicians use essentially to justify telling people that their lives are not good enough. And they'll only improve if they vote for whichever party they represent. And very often people find that actually not a lot changes. One of the reasons is maybe not a lot was that wrong actually to start with. And advertising and politics, I think, are very similar things because it's all about selling something that maybe, ultimately, you don't actually need. It's interesting, though, looking at politics, because uh, I was thinking about two politicians, both Conservative politicians, Michael Heseltine and Theresa May, Michael Heseltine is an interesting subject because he famously, when he was at university, wrote down on the back of an envelope his entire life's plan. He wrote down when he was going to be an MP, when he was going to be a Cabinet Minister and when he was going to be Prime Minister and he decided by his 50s he would be Prime Minister and he very nearly pulled it off because in 1990 he challenged Margaret Thatcher for the leadership, forced her to resign, but then he lost the subsequent leadership contest to John Major who made him Deputy Prime Minister but he never quite became Prime Minister. Whereas Theresa May did become Prime Minister, uh, but it was almost immediately a shambles, and her entire three years as Prime Minister was marked by her failure to get Brexit through the House of Commons. She called an election to earn a big majority and ended up with no majority, and she had to resign uh, just a few months ago. And... Maybe historians will be kind to her, but in the sort of current climate, I think most people would say she wasn't a great prime minister. So I guess the question therefore is, well, was she a failure or was she a success? She became prime minister, which in politics is, you know, the ultimate goal, but she didn't make a success of it when she got there. Whereas Michael Heseltine, he didn't become prime minister, but he served in a lot of other big jobs and became established as a sort of Tory grandee and someone even now they, they roll out to, to give his opinions on things. Of course, the Heseltine situation comes back to what I was saying about how success is defined often by our own expectations. And here's has been incredibly grandiose. I mean, who on earth sits at the age of 21 or whatever and plots out their life and decides they're going to be prime minister by the time they're 50? The answer is probably someone who's been to public school. So that's a different life entirely. And it reminded me, actually, as I was reading about this... And he, the way that he was sort of... He, he did that in an unabashed way. He just thought, almost, I'm entitled to this. As, frankly, that class of person does. And that background does. I was thinking about Ricky Walden, who was on this podcast... Who told me that... And you can go and listen to it. He told me that when he was at school... Obviously, from a working class background... So, it's completely different. They, the teacher went around the class and asked the, the students... To put pupils what they wanted to be when they left school... And he said he wanted to be a professional snooker player. And he was told to go and stand out in the corridor and not to be so stupid. Because (laughs) coming from that world, you couldn't just say what you wanted to be. You sort of fit more into a a more sort of um, conventional box. The truth is both Heseltine and Theresa May were a success, but they also had failings as well. If you look at the arts world, throw a name out there, Glenn Close, great actor has had a career most actors will kill for. She was nominated for, or has so far been nominated for seven Oscars and has not won any of them. So does that make her a failure? Well, no, she's still Glenn Close. She's still, as I say, had a a stellar career. But there is, in that world, in that certainly Hollywood world, a sort of um, a measure of success is winning an Academy Award, which so far she's not done. So, again, a successful career that's had its moments of not failure, but moments that could have been, I guess, even more successful. And the arts are an interesting area for this because it's quite there's quite often a division between work that's been critically well received and works that is popular. But who decides how you define success in either terms? So I'll give you an example. Okay, Andrew Lloyd Webber has written scores of sellout musicals, made fortunes from them. So they've been popular with the public, but most of them have been panned by critics and he's still kind of treated, you know, as not a sort of heavyweight, even though clearly he is, you know, he's, <laughs> he's absolutely sold out on, uh, in the West End on Broadway and made fortunes. But to a certain critic, he's not quite cut from the right cloth when it comes to musical theatre. Dan Brown wrote The Da Vinci Code and again made fortunes. It was absolutely lapped up by millions of people around the world. Absolutely savaged by critics as not good writing. Not, not well written. Well, you know what was well written? The royalty checks he received. I'm sure he's still receiving probably every 40 minutes through his letterbox. So again, he might not have been successful in convincing the critical world of his abilities, but he convinced enough people who actually spent money buying the books. And again, by any measure, he is a success. I can relate to that on a much lower level. Some of you may know that uh, in addition to the work I do in Snooker, I'm also a playwright. Now, I'm not at the level of, you know, the David Hare's and the James Graham's and, and those sort of people who have plays at the National Theatre and in the West End and Broadway. I haven't had any of that. And I may never do, but that doesn't mean i failed because one of the things about the artistic world is very often people, and go back to Glenn Close, very often people talk about that end point, winning the Oscar, winning the award, but actually it always starts with doing the work and the worst thing for a writer to see is a blank page with nothing on it because you have to fill it and then you have to fill the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one until you have a piece of work which you then have to present to someone a director or a producer and they have to give their approval and say that they think it can go on the stage and then it has to be put together and it can be a long process and then there's reactions from the audience if there is an audience and reactions from the critical community. And at the end of all of that, there may be some sort of award or some sort of praise. But the actual success in all of that is writing the play. (laughs) It's actually transforming your idea that you've had in your head onto the page and having the discipline to finish it. Since 2016 at the Edinburgh Fringe to last month, uh, well, July actually, um, I've had six plays that have been produced that people, audience members have paid money to come and see. They haven't been, by any means, uh, hugely high profile, but the fact is they've been on a stage, and I'm very proud of them. And it may be, as I say, I never progressed beyond that uh, phase of my career, but still, that doesn't make me a failure. To me, I wanted to do this, and I've done it. Um, I was nominated for the Kenneth Branagh New Writing Award, two years running, got to the final two years running, didn't win either time. So again, is that success or failure? Well, the competition had around about 300 entries and they picked three plays for the finals. So I'm in the top 1%. So you could say, well, that's success, but I didn't win. <laughs> so you could argue, well, you failed. I don't see it that way because, again, the plays were actually put on the stage. But what I'm saying is, again, I'm come back to the central point. The way that we consider success, I think, should be more about our own expectations rather than the pressure that's put on us from other people. Um, I mean, Jimmy White has heard, obviously, for years, you know, you've never won the World Championship. Jimmy White is a working-class kid from Tooting who had a talent for snooker. The area he came from, who knows what would have happened to him had he not had a talent for snooker. He's had a very successful life. Uh, He's enjoyed it, clearly, at times, maybe in the past, enjoyed it too much. But he's a hugely popular star of British sport, people love him, he's still playing now, he's still doing what he wants now. So you could say his life has been successful. He's not been World Snooker champion, but maybe he didn't need to be, to be happy, to be a success on his own terms. Now, outside and the way that other people look at it, they would say, well, he can't be considered. We did that top 10 thing at the Crucible, myself, Hector Nuns and Alan McManus for World Snooker, where we listed the top 10 greatest players and Jimmy, in the end, was left out. He was only left out because he never won the world championship because that is, by objective measure, um, a sign of greatness, a sign of success. But the fact that he hasn't won it, it doesn't mean his life hasn't been a success. He's done exactly what he wanted to do since he was a boy, which is play snooker, he's travelled the world, he's lived a very good life. So the fact that you know, the world title is missing, it doesn't make Jimmy by any means a failure. His life is successful, you speak to him, he's incredibly happy. The problem is we're so often sold ideas, I go back to advertising and politicians again, of what our life should look like. Here's what advertisers never tell you. They never say, you know, you're actually doing okay, go out in the garden, drink a glass of wine, because the sun's out, (laughs) because that gets gets you nowhere. They're not going to sell, you know, garden furniture. They're not going to sell a new car or a new holiday or anything like that. Well, they might sell garden furniture, actually, because you're in the garden. But what I'm saying is they never say your life's all right. They always say you need something else to make yourself happier. But actually, and this is a weird, in a weird way, this is where social media has helped. You look at Instagram. The, no matter how many times you go to the gym, there'll always be someone who looks better than you. There'll always be someone with more money than you. There'll always be someone doing something more exciting than you because that's just how life is. What maybe we le- need to learn to do is enjoy the journey a bit more, you know, rather than getting to an old age and then looking back at, oh, I achieved all of that, maybe to appreciate it a bit more. As we go on. So we return to Michael Holt. I admire Michael's honesty and I know that he he is frustrated that he hasn't made the the jump into the top sixteen, the jump to being a regular tournament winner. But he's earning a living from Snooker, which I'm sure when he was a boy would have been a dream of his. He's a father and a husband now. He's providing for his family. He's earned he earned to seventy grand last season on the tour, and you know, there's opportunities to to earn quite a bit of money without necessarily having to win big tournaments. Go back to when he turned professional, 1996. You know, if you'd have told him then he'd still be a professional, no relegation, straight through, and played at the Crucible, and played in some of the great tournaments, played some of the great players, beaten the great players. I think he would have taken that. But of course, that doesn't necessarily apply itself to right now, as he sees players winning tournaments, players he knows who. He can beat in practice. He's beaten in tournaments, and he is yet to win one. It goes back to what I said right at the start, which is the whole kind of uh, conclusion of this thesis, which is that success is defined by our own expectations, but also we allow it to be defined by other people's. And I guess it's the answer to accepting what we've done in life is to marry the two together, Um, and that applies in all walks of life, sport maybe is a little different because it is more measurable. You don't have that conflict I was talking about with people like Andrew Lloyd Webber. You know, you go to the World Championship, but if you win it, then that is as successful as you can be in that tournament. You've won the World Championship. If you don't win it, then it's a disappointment. The truth is Michael Holt has been more successful than most people, the vast majority of people, who've ever picked up a cue. but by his own standards and himself, he hasn't been successful enough. But as I said earlier, there is still time. And as you watch Snook on television and as you see players winning and losing, and that's, you know, there's going to be more losing than winning, let's be honest. It's interesting to think about how they feel about their careers. A lot of players that I speak to in the immediate moment are more interested in their performance. I think a player can, can accept playing really well and losing, it's not performing and not producing the goods for a myriad of reasons that they often feel down about. But I think you also have to look at where a lot of these players have come from. You know, in snooker, most of them are from working-class backgrounds. Mark Williams came from very humble beginnings in South Wales. And who cares if he has not won six world titles, he's won three. Because where he's come from to win one was a major achievement. Mark Selby as well. You know, his father died when he was young. He had to basically sleep on his mate's floor to won three world titles coming from that background, if that's not success, I don't know what is. And these guys, these players and not just the top players, I'm talking about all the professionals. You know, they've to a degree made it. They've got themselves on the tour. They've got themselves in the reckoning. They've given themselves the opportunities. So they've already, I guess, scaled one level of success. It's then about the next one and the next one and the next one. The truth is not everyone can be world champion, there's only one chance a year, but more players than that can take a sense of satisfaction from their careers, from what they've achieved and uh, a sense of fulfilment that having, and it's the same with all of them, they've all grown up wanting to be snooker players and as I say, they've, they've made it, they've, they've done that. So that is, to a degree, a success. Tell me what you think. As I say, this wasn't scripted. That's probably uh, not a surprise if you've listened to it. But I was very interested in the article that the interview with Michael on the Metro online website because it did get me thinking, as I say, about okay, to him, he's not achieved what he wanted to. But there'd be a lot of players, particularly as I say, those who started out with him and fell by the wayside pretty quickly, who would say, Well, I'd quite like that career. It's interesting. As I say, everyone. Feels about their life, about their achievements, in a different way. But maybe the answer is to try and shut out all the other expectation, what other people tell you you're supposed to have done, and try and make the most of what you have done. Well, that's it. Uh, That's the the end of this uh, speech, diatribe, whatever you want to call it. Um, We'll be back soon with much more. Sports Social Podcast Network. This is the story of the one. Before it, the familiar. Beyond it, the unknown. Enter the all-new Lexus GX. It's designed to be capable. It's designed to be luxurious. But most of all, it's designed to get you past your horizon. And the nice thing about horizons is that once they're crossed, there's always another, patiently waiting its turn. Live up to it. The all-new Lexus GX. Click the banner to discover more. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.